I don't know about you, but have you ever wished you lived in a different era? Like you watch Pride and Prejudice and you're like, oh, oh, were men really like that? No, they weren't. But the thought is, I'd live in a house like that, in a state or a manor house. But the truth is, if you lived in those days, you might be a scullery maid or a chambermaid. That's even worse. I won't even explain that one. But we, we see these pictures of the 20s or the 1950s, and we think, oh, that time was more innocent or better to live in. But you know, the truth is, it wasn't. I remember uh, there's a place in England, up in York, and it it's uh, called the, the Shambles. And it's this street, and it's exactly, almost perfectly preserved to what it was in the 1800s. And it's cobblestone street, no cars go down there. It's um, Tudor, and the, the buildings are all kind of crooked and all connected. And I was saying to my friend Karen, who's English, oh, Karen, does this make you wish you lived in Dickens' time? And she said, what? With the sewage coming out of the windows, falling on our petticoats, and having all that debris around us, and the smells. I said, never mind, you just ruined the moment. (laughs) I am called to 2016. You know, people often look back at the 60s and say, oh, the 60s, when people were just themselves. No, it was seriously the scariest time ever. I remember feeling like the world was out of control. President Kennedy was assassinated when I was four years old. Martin Luther was assassinated. Robert Kennedy was assassinated. I mean, it seems like anyone could get shot. Riots were everywhere. Hell's angels. I remember riding on, um, down the street at uh, Ortega Highway with my parents and being surrounded by the hell's angels. And they surrounded our whole car. And my mom began to pray in tongues. I prayed in tongues too, because I got baptized in the spirit when I was five. And my dad just prayed. And we were just driving. And I mean, and they were making gestures. They were screaming obscenities at us. And I just, I really thought, okay, I'm going to go see Jesus. It was such a frightening time. But as we prayed, they just went on ahead of us. We have no idea what we did wrong. Or did right. But there were the Black Panthers. There was the Sibyanese Liberation Army. Remember that? Remember all of it? The Vietnam War? It seemed like the whole world was out of control. For me, the 60s were just a terrible, insecure time. I was so excited to get to the 70s. The truth is, though, that we are living in exactly the time we were meant to live in. God sovereignly appointed each one of us to live at this time, in this place, and with all the circumstances that we face. This is God's sovereign work. Paul, speaking to the intellectuals at Mars Hill in Acts 17, 26, said this, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And this is the part I want to talk about. And has determined their pre-appointed times. God has determined the pre-appointed time for each of us and the boundaries of their habitation. That means where we live. So that men everywhere should seek the Lord in hope that they might find him, though he is not far from each of us. Many of you are familiar with the story of Esther where Esther has this uncle, Mordecai, 
And he overhears and um, learns about the plot of a man named Haman, who is the chief advisor to the king, to annihilate every Jew in the kingdom of Persia and in the known world and to confiscate all of their goods. And Mordecai goes to Esther, who at this time is married to King Ahasuerus, and says, go before the king on behalf of your people, intercede. And she says to him, if I go, I might die because the king has to hold out his scepter of favor or call for me. And he has not called for me in many days. And Mordecai sends back word and says, if you at this time remain completely silent, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You are all appointed to this time, to this place, to the circumstances that you're in, to intercede and to help to save the world, to bring them to Jesus Christ. God is sovereign over all. He has ordained the time we live in and nothing comes as a surprise to God. You know, we've all heard that joke about the lady who uh, was so afraid she was going to die and she got a promise from God, you are not going to die. And so realizing that she had many more years to live, she went, she got a facelift and a tummy tuck and some liposuction and she came out from the surgeon's office and got hit by a car and died. And when she appeared before the pearly gates, she said, Lord, I thought you told me that I had a lot more time. He goes, I did, but I just didn't recognize you. (laughs) Not true. God knows our DNA. He always recognizes us. He has pre-appointed our days and nothing comes as a surprise to God. He always recognizes us. He is over all the circumstances in our life and has appointed us and called us to these times, these places, and these circumstances. To live a life on the altar means that we constantly declare Jesus' lordship over all. Not only over our lives, but over the time we live in, over the circumstances, and over the place where we live. Having placed our life on the altar as living sacrifices, we have volunteered our whole lives for the service of God. So we say, God, you put me in the time and the place and the circumstances that will most glorify you. Now, this is awesome because we can look at whatever we're going through and say, this is meant to glorify God. This God will use for his glory because not only do I go on the altar, not only am I on the altar, but I put everything I go through on the altar. I put my times on the altar. I put the place I live at on the altar. I put the circumstances on on my life, in my life, on the altar. Everything. If I'm on the altar, everything's going on the altar. You know, if I'm, if I'm going to be sacrificed, you're going to be sacrificed. We're, we put it all on the altar. And we are ready. We are ready for God to raise us up, to use us. In these times, these places, 
and the circumstances that we find ourselves in, God has a plan and it includes you, each one of you. Nobody in this room is exempt from the plan and plans of God. Everything that happens to us goes on the altar. Because all of this, this whole section, 12, 13, 14, 15, and even the last chapter of Romans, in fact, we're almost in a series within a series, is all about life on the altar. All about the attitude and the relationship that we have to everything when our life is on the altar. Now, it's important to remember, when Paul wrote this epistle to the Romans, he wrote it from Corinth. Uh, Maybe you remember that Corinth was a very, very debased city. Rome was debased. Corinth was debased. It was the sailor's town. Need I say more? It was where um, part of the Olympics were held. The Europe and the Mediterranean was ruled by Rome. There was dishonest and oppressive taxation. There were soldiers who were cruel and um, hostile. And there was a persecution of the gospel going on. In fact, there was a competition between the monarch, Caesar at the time, and the worship of God. When the persecution began to break out, and it broke out first in Thessalonica, it was that they wanted to require every citizen to say Caesar was Lord, and the believers refused to say that. Remember, the system of government was the very system that delivered Jesus up to crucifixion, and it was the Romans that instituted the cruelest, most humiliating form of punishment for non-Roman citizens, which was crucifixion. Nero was the emperor at this time. He was an absolutely despicable character. He had his mother poisoned. He had two of his wives poisoned. He openly lived an immoral life, having two young men castrated and then marrying them on separate occasions publicly before all of the citizens of Rome. He promoted brutality in every form. In fact, one of his first edicts had to do with this. A slave had risen up and killed um, a terrible master in Rome. It was a household of over 400 servants. The the ruler over this household had been um, a very devious, very evil, wicked man. And one of the slaves uh, started a revolt and he killed this awful man. And Caesar's ruling was that all 400 slaves in the household, whether they had anything to do with it or not, would be killed and executed. If any slave rebuilt and he put into action a ruling that said if any slave in any house rebelled, then every slave in that household was to be put to death. Those were the times that Paul wrote this epistle to the Romans. And remember, the Romans are the closest to this. Slaves in the Roman society had absolutely no rights at all. And women had no rights in the Roman culture. And the majority of people living in the known world 
were slaves, especially true of Rome. And yet Paul, in chapter 13, speaking of life on the altar, says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authority that exists are appointed by God. So in the altered life, Paul speaks to the believers about their relationship to the secular world, beginning with the government, next to the people who live in this world and under that government, and finally to the times that we live in. Paul insists that the life God has given to us accepts the conditions acknowledges God as the highest authority and love as the greatest ally and weapon that he has given us, is aware of the time that they are living in and awakens to the opportunities that God gives. Let me give that one more time. The altered life accepts the conditions, acknowledges God always as the highest authority and love as the greatest weapon is aware of the time and awakens to the opportunities that God gives. So we begin again with government. Paul says we're to accept this government. We might not like it, but we're to accept it and be subject to it. We those who are on the altar. We are to be law-abiding citizens, obey the rules of the land, and not to resist authority. Paul points out that rulers are actually appointed by God for his services. God is doing a work using the rulers that we don't always know or understand. Sometimes we are fighting against the very... um, purposes of God. God uses them. I I recently read a book and it was really interesting. It was called Stalin's Daughter. It's a very, very long uh, book and it's a biography of Stalin's daughter. And in the book, she talks about her father's personal struggle with God. I was absolutely shocked. And at one point when all this persecution is going, going to go against the church, he stops it because he gets this tremendous fear of God. And he actually stops it. And she says something degrading about God in the church. And he says, don't you ever do that again. Interesting. And God was working even through Stalin behind the scenes. You know, I think that we give rulers too much credit. I believe rulers are just men in dress-up clothes, plain, make-believe. My personal opinion. Paul says in verse 1 that there is no authority but what God appoints. So when we look at that, we have to say, well, Nero must have been appointed for God for his purposes. And though we don't understand those purposes, God does. John the Baptist said in John 3.27, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. God appoints The psalmist says, I believe it's Psalm 71, that promotion does not come from the east or the west, but from the Lord. Jesus said to Pilate in John 19, 11, you could have no power at all against me unless it has been given you from above. 
I wonder if sometimes God allows persecution just to give some people a great reward and a great entrance into heaven. We will never understand the things on earth until we're in the throne room of heaven. And then we are going to say, wow, it all makes sense. I never realized that this was the glory, that this was, that this was what you had for me. I've told you this before, but I remember uh, taking care of my uh, youngest grandson uh, at the time, Ryder. He's now nine, but he was uh, just under two at the time. And his mom had gotten, um, her eardrum had burst and she needed her mother. And I was always on call as all mothers are. And I drove up to Northern California and I was trying to take care of Ryder. And when I would come in his room in the morning, because his mother couldn't and his father was working, He would take his blanket, throw it over his head, and back into the furthest corner. And I said, you know what? You're not going to do that. I'm your grandmother. I love you more than anybody else in the whole wide world will ever love you. I am here for you, and I am fun. And you are going to learn it. And I would pick him up, and he'd be like, you know? And so I took him downstairs, and I fed him chocolate ice cream for breakfast. And I remember at first he didn't want to have a bite, so I just put it on his lip, and he was like, because he did not realize that I was there for him and for his glorification and, and for his fun. I was there for one reason, to spoil him. And I think I told you this story when my daughter got better and she took over and I drove home. I taught him one word while I was there. One word. And every time he would say that word, I would give him a treat. And when I got home, my daughter called me up and she said, look what you have created. And she held the phone out and I heard, Grandma, Grandma, Grandma. We are to live law-abiding lives. We don't know all the good things God has for us. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the great things that God has prepared for those who love him. Heaven's going to make it all make sense and be so worthwhile. So for today, we are to live law-abiding lives for the sake of our witness, according to verse 4, the witness of the gospel, and so that we can be free, unhindered, for the spread of the gospel. The law is actually a safeguard for us and God instituted government for our protection, the punishment of evildoers and the welfare of the people. Protection, punishment of evildoers and the welfare of the people. So we are to accept the government, verse five, to avoid wrath and for conscience sake. In relationship to the government, we are not to make it preeminent. Don't make the government the most important thing in your life. In fact, Paul is saying, obey the rules so you can forget about the government and do the will of God. Pay your taxes so you can forget about the government and do the will of God. I love the fact that when the Sadducees and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, should we pay taxes or not? Jesus didn't even have a coin. It's like, anyone have a coin? Can I borrow it? 
We, we serve the God without a denarius. He had to call for it. And when the denarius came, he showed it to the Sadducees and Pharisees. And he asked this question, whose inscription and image is on this coin? Now, in that day, it was, uh, it was, a, it was Caesar Tiberius. It was his picture, his image on the coin. And it said this, Caesar Augustus Divini Filius. And what that means is son of the God Augustus Lord. That was what the coin said. Caesar Augustus Divini Filius. That's the coin that Jesus held up and said, if he's your Lord, if he's If he's your son of God, you either serve the imitation or you serve the reality. And he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Render is the Greek word and it means to give someone their due or what they want. Just hand it over, in other words. It's interesting because Paul uses the same word render in verse seven when he says, render, render taxes to whom taxes are due. Custom, to whom custom is due. In other words, you know, every culture has certain customs or way of doing things. He says, just do it that way for the sake of not offending. When Hudson Taylor went to China, he dressed as the Chinese dressed and he took on their customs so that he wouldn't offend them so he could better minister to them. The rest of the missionaries, when Hudson Taylor went to China, they lived in these walled off um, walled off uh, little sections that they'd made for themselves. And then they would just go out this section in their Western clothes with their Western ways, share Jesus with the people and go right back into their Western enclosure. And they were not having success in China. And what Hudson Taylor did is he dressed as the Chinese. He went out and he lived like the Chinese and he observed their customs and he respected their culture. And in doing so, thousands upon thousands of Chinese were led to Jesus Christ. He called it this. He called it an incarnation. He said that Jesus, who is God, became man and lived among us. And Jesus, he, he followed the customs or the culture that he was in and gave us an example so that we are, as Paul said, to be all things to all men. We are to observe the customs. We are not to offend going, well, in America, they do it bigger. You know, it's interesting because living in England, they don't have any electrical sockets in the bathrooms. Isn't that interesting? And I remember this one woman who uh, was moving to England and she was highly offended and she was redoing a house there. Her husband would be uh, working for a year in England and she asked them to put electrical sockets in the bathroom and the workers were highly offended that she would even request such a thing. The electricity in England is 220, ours is 120. That means it's so easy to get electrified and they were shocked by her request. But you know, 
I had to learn in England when we had our first retreat. You know, we went to a retreat center and they said, and tea time is 11 and 3. So in other words, we could not schedule anyone to speak at 11 in the morning or at 3 in the afternoon. We had to take an hour break just for tea. It was so wonderful. (laughs) And then they said this, and the 3 o'clock includes who made cake. Okay, I can do this. So I had to observe, you know, the custom. But, you know, it, it means so much when you respect the customs. You, when you go into a house and they say, we take off our shoes, and you take off your shoes. So Paul is saying, respect the customs. Next he says, uh, respect or give respect. Fear those to whom fear is due or respect. Don't talk down. Don't use demeaning terms. Don't be belligerent. When we look at Paul in the court of Festus and Felix and Herod, he was so respectful. Here is Herod coming in with his sister Bernice that he has an incestuous relationship with. And yet Paul is so respectful. He is so respectful to Felix, who was a slave that was promoted to uh, the uh, governorship of Israel. And he was uh, cruel and oppressive and terrible. And yet Paul is so respectful. Then Paul says, honor, show the right attitude. I think about how Daniel served in two different secular governments. And yet he was so respectful to Nebuchadnezzar. And he was respectful and honoring to Darius. So much so that Darius even began to pray for Daniel when Daniel was put into the lion's den. This is the respect that Paul is speaking about because God uses even bad dictators for his glory. And one of the ways he uses bad dictators for his glory is that without oppression, there is no appreciation for freedom. I think we're raising up a generation that does not understand oppression because they haven't felt the oppression. At one point in 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 8, God allows, and this is with Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and you've had this incredible unbridled success in David's kingdom of 40 years, just success and blessing and blessing. Then you have Solomon for 40 years, blessing, blessing. In fact, there's so much gold and so much silver in Jerusalem. It's just commonplace. And then Rehoboam takes the throne and Rehoboam begins to compromise And God allows Shishak, um, who's the pharaoh in Egypt, to come and invade Jerusalem and take away all of uh, the shields, the golden shields that are in the temple. And God says this about it. Nevertheless, they will be Pharaoh's servants that they may distinguish my service from the service of the kingdoms of the nations. God often allows oppressive governments to make a distinction, to make us long for heaven, to say, you know what? This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. You know, we're always looking for Shangri-La on earth, aren't we? 
We're always trying to make it a utopia on earth. And if that was so, would we really long for heaven? God knows what is needed to get people saved. He knows how much oppression, how much pressure to put on. And God allows men to rule that he might show the fatality, the futility, and the fallibility of man's rule so that we will long for the rule of God alone. Next, we see, Paul says, what our relationship to society is. When it comes to society, we need to acknowledge Again, God is over all, and he has given us love as the greatest tool in our arsenal. So in verse 8, Paul says, Owe no one anything but to love the brethren. In other words, this is the debt we owe to society. You know, when a criminal um, commits a crime, it's like you owe your debt to society. And so they go to prison to repay their debt to society because they have sinned against society. But our debt, what we owe, we don't owe a debt to society because we haven't committed the crime, but we owe the debt because of God's love to love others because of how he has loved us. And Paul says, this is how we fulfill the law. We fulfill the law by love. This, this, Jesus said, is the greatest. This is what fulfills all the law and the prophets. This is what everything was pointing to. If we would just love. But this love is not, you know, um, brotherly love or something we can conjure up. Jesus took a very unused word that Paul employs right here, and that's the word agape. Agape was not used commonly in that culture. In fact, it was introduced by one of the great philosophers, and he only used it very um, sparingly. But Jesus took this word agape and said, this is a higher, this is a spiritual love. And and again, um, I believe it was Aristotle introduced it as a spiritual or ethereal love, the ultimate love. But Jesus said, let me tell you what the ultimate love is. The ultimate love can only come from God. But the ultimate love is given and it's different. It's unique and it's superior to any love on earth. It's the greatest love. And that's agape. And and in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, as we studied this week, we see the superiority of this love. It doesn't get jealous. Interestingly enough, you know I just got my dog Barnabas, which Brian is kind of taking over. But today I was, I was studying my Bible, and there's a cat staying with me right now named Baby Kitty. And Baby Kitty was coming over on the chair and just kind of like, hey, Cheryl, how are you doing? Have a little love. And uh, Barnabas is in, you know, he's about, 10 feet away, and all of a sudden he sits up, whoop, and he starts barking. And I'm looking at him like, what's your problem? The dog doesn't bark, you know? And then he's so smart, he looks at me, and he looks at the cat. And he looks back at me like, what do you think you're doing? That cat belongs to your daughter. I'm yours. You pet me. And I thought, oh, he doesn't love the cat. 
He's envying. But I don't know that dogs know agape. They do know unconditional love, though. But love does not envy. Love is not puffed up. Love does not look for the wrongs or keep a list of the wrongs done. Love wants to forgive. Love wants a free flow constantly. And Paul is saying, this is what we owe others. That same unconditional love that we have received from the Lord. That love that we sang about that is deeper than the ocean, higher than the heavens, reaches. That's the love that reached to us that we owe others because of all that God has given to us. Our only debt to society is to love. Now, the interesting thing about love, too, is I can accept anything when it's done in a spirit of love, just about anything. You know, when someone tells me I have something on my tooth because they love me and they don't want me to look like an idiot, I accept that. But when somebody goes, (laughs) you have something in your tooth, you're like, no, I don't. You know, you just, it, it, it just bothers you, it wrangles you. But love gives you such an environment that you know you're still safe, you're still wanted, you're not going to be rejected, that you can be yourself and you can admit your faults. And when we love society, they can come to us and they can say, I'm really not comfortable with the way I'm living. I, I'm not receiving all I thought I would by, by promoting myself or by giving into all my lusts. I'm really not happy. Years ago, when we were living in England, uh, these two women knocked at our door and their car had broken down in front of our house of all places. And they came to our door and Brian, Brian invited them in. He looked at the car. He let them use the phone. I gave them some tea and some cookies. And he sat down and he began to just talk to them. And he began to share with them about Jesus. And one of the women stopped and said, you don't understand, we're gay. And Brian said, you don't understand, you need Jesus. And the, as Brian began to share, the, the women began to cry. And they said, we're really not happy in this lifestyle. You know, and, and we, it's not everything we thought. And Brian goes, maybe you ought to just be friends and come to Jesus. You know, just come to Jesus. And, you know, and then the lady said, I think we were meant to break down right in front of your house. And Brian said, I think you were too, because Jesus wants you. And he has a plan for your life. And, but it was the atmosphere of love that they were able to all of a sudden say, we're not content. This lifestyle has not given us what we thought. We've been fighting. You know, we're not feeling right. But it was the atmosphere of love. You know, if the church loves again so that people could come into the doors and they can lay their sins down and know that as they lay their sins down, they will receive more love and not condemnation like, oh, you used to have that? No, but they receive love. This is what we owe. Love is the fulfillment of the law. If we loved our neighbor, we would treat our neighbor as we do ourselves. Do you want somebody to rob you? Mm-mm. Do, do you... Do you want someone looking at your husband? No. Then why would you do that to somebody else? 
As Jesus said in Matthew 7, 12, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them for this is the law and the prophets. Our ultimate debt is to God for all that he has done for us. And he has told us to love our agape, our neighbors, our enemies, our brothers and sisters, and those in the world. But you know, when we're on the altar and we have these altered lives, it's not that we have to conjure up agape, like I will love them. I will love that stupid idiot. (laughs) It's more that we empty ourselves that God's love might come. We say, Lord, get rid of whatever residual faulty love is in me that I might have that greater love. Again, I always go back to John chapter two, that wedding in Cana. We have to run out of of what we have that we might be filled with the superior water that Jesus turns to wine, that we might be filled with the greater We have to run out that we might be filled again. Remember how Jesus said, I didn't come to patch up old garments or to fill old wineskins. I came to do a whole different work. You you need these new garments and you need this new wine with new wineskins. We need to notice that our garments are torn and our wineskins are old. And we need what only Jesus can give and let it free flow from us. Again, if we love, we won't commit adultery. We don't want to hurt our spouses or defraud others. We'll be for marriage, not only for our own marriage, but for the marriages of others. We will be pro-marriage between a woman and a man in Christ. We will not steal We will not take from each other. We will not lie or slander or gossip about each other. And we will not covet. Instead of wanting what you have for myself, I will be so excited that God gave you that. And I will be blessed for you. Love does no harm to its neighbor because love is the fulfillment of the law. I have a friend whose father worked in the government of Saddam Hussein. And she was telling me that Saddam Hussein surrounded himself by Christians. Now remember, he was Muslim. He was very secular. But he only felt safe with Christians. He did not feel safe with other Muslims. Interesting. Richard Dawkins, the foremost atheist voice in England, who's a college professor in Oxford, He owns these flats that he rents out. He will only rent to Christians because they're the only ones who will leave his property intact and have respect for his property. Hmm. Hmm. That's my mother used to say. Hmm. We need to acknowledge the time we live in, not only accept the conditions, the government what God has put us under, but to acknowledge the time, uh, acknowledge the time that we live in, that is God ordained. God has placed us in this time. Not only do we accept the conditions under which we live, acknowledge that love is the weapon that God has given us, but that God has greater purposes in all of life. So we are to also be aware of the time that we live in. 
We live in such a time as this. Paul says, verse 11, and do this knowing the time, knowing the time, aware of the time. When I am aware of the time, every second counts. I, I do away with the trivial and I concentrate on what is most important when I'm aware of the time. You know, when I'm making dinner and I'm aware of the time, I am making sure that the vegetables and this and that are being done. And I'm thinking, I don't have time to make, you know, dessert. We can do without dessert. You know, I, I'm, I'm, it's critical when I'm aware of the time. On the Wednesday, October 2nd, before my dad died, when we went over there, I was aware that he was in a coma. And I was aware of the time that anything I said, this is the time to only say the most important things in life. And I remember that all I could say was, I love you, Dad. You've been the best dad to me. You've been a great dad. And I love you. And that was, that was it. That was the most important thing. I, I didn't have a lot of time. And that was the essence of what needed to be said. And I was watching the clock and knowing this is it. This is it. I'm not going to see him until we're both standing around the throne of God. But I will see him. But I knew that the time was critical. We need to be aware of the time that we live in. That the night is far spent. The night is almost over. The night of man's rule. It's almost over. The sun is about to shine. The morning is about to dawn. And in light of the times that we live in, that, that these are temporary times. We only have this much time to work. We only have this much time to do the will of the Lord. You know, I've had some major moves in my life. We, we lived in Vista for 13 years. At one point, I thought we'd live in Vista for the rest of our lives. I loved the church in Vista. And we were called to England. And I remember knowing I was moving to England, I thought, oh my goodness, have I fully equipped these women in Vista? Have I loved them to the uttermost? Have I washed their feet? Have I raised them up for leadership? Have I given them the counsel of God? Have I done everything I could? And I spent my last summer in Vista just with this question and answer, just making myself available to the women there in Vista because I knew this is it. I'm moving to England. When I moved to England, I thought I'm going to be here for the rest of my life. And then all of a sudden, we'd been there for four years and the call came to move back. And the thought came to me, have I really loved these women in England? Have I given them everything that God gave me to give them? Have I given them all the bread, all the fish that he put into my hands? Have I loved them to the uttermost? And I just kind of upped the ante of just pouring into them everything that I could. Then my daughters grew up and my children grew up. I thought they'd be little forever. I have a 35-year-old daughter. I, I just celebrated my son's 25th birthday. My baby. My baby's 25. I, I, there was a card and it says, you know, son, when you wept, we weep. When you laugh, we rejoice. And it says, and when you age, we feel older than dirt. 
I, I just thought, oh. And all of a sudden, when I realized you know, my daughter's getting married, my oldest, I'm like, have I poured into you? Have I told you how loved you are? Have I given you the best recipes that were passed down to me? Have I taught you to cook? Do you? I remember turning to my daughter, Kristen, going, do you know how to pick out carrots? She's like, what? I said, like, when you mark it, do you know you're looking for the smallest and the thinnest because they're the freshest and they've got the most nutrients in it? Did I teach you that? Do you know how to iron a shirt? Do you know that you start with the collar and then go to the, you know, the yoke and then the sleeves? And do you, do you know this? And she looked at me and she said, Mom, I know how to teach Sunday school, and that's really all I need for life. (laughs) But there was this thought, have I poured into my children? Have I given? Because I thought I had all the time in the world, but you know what? Time is short. Time is short, and you will not be in this situation forever. And that's what Paul is saying. Everything is temporary. You think you might live in Orange County for the rest of your life? Surprise. Things happen. You think you're going to have this group of women all around you? Surprise, things happen. You think your children are always going to be little where you can pour into them? Surprise, they move to New York or Northern California and then threaten to move to London. Surprise, surprise, surprise. We only have this much time. We need to make the most. And that's what the life on the altar does. It makes the most of the opportunities that God gives us because it's aware that the time is short. Speaking of time being short, let's move on. And we awake to the purposes and call of God on our life. But Paul says in order to awake, we must first cast off the works of darkness. And I love the way the NLT puts it. It says, take them off like old clothes. Take off the revelry. Uh, This is the Greek word komos, meaning preoccupation with self-indulgence. Take it off. Take off the drunkenness, numbing ourselves to the world around us. Take it off. Take off the licentious. This is the word koit, which means sexual immorality. Take off the lewdness. Like you really want these Greek words, but nevertheless. Azaglia, unbridled lust. Take it off. Take off off the strife, heiress, the contentions and the fighting. We don't have time for that. The time is short and we don't have time. Get it off. Envy, zealous, wanting someone else's calling, possessions or positions. Take it off. Take off the old clothes and be dressed with the armor of God. Get dressed in the articles you need to best serve the Lord and to be of his service. Put on those new clothes. Put on the armor of light. The ones that will attract to Jesus Christ. The ones that will shine brightly. The ones that are prepared for service to do the Lord's will. These other things distract us from the calling God has for each of us at this time, this place, and this situation we are in. And we need to be clothed with God's armament. Putting on the character and the person of Jesus Christ. Being in Christ going deeper and deeper into what he is and who he is. And then Paul says this, we are not to make provision for the flesh. Now, you can sabotage your spiritual life if you leave provision for the flesh. 
you can sabotage. And I think you all know what I'm doing. And let me relate it to this. Whenever I go on a diet, the first thing I get rid of is corn chips. Because they'll always sabotage my diet. I don't know why it is. When I'm hungry, I crave carbs. And any carb will work. But you know, you have to, you have to clear out your cupboards. So that when you come home hungry, there's the celery just waiting for you. You know what I'm talking about? Well, when it comes to your spiritual life, you don't leave the phone number of your old boyfriend. You don't go to Facebook and see what, you know, your old love from high school is doing with his life and how he's enjoying his jail time. You don't do that. Because at a weak moment, it will be your fallback. And Paul says, don't make provision for the flesh. In case this doesn't work out, then I can do this and that, this and that. Don't have your fallback plans. Get rid of them and hurl yourself completely onto the will of God. Not, well, if the altar life doesn't work out, I've got another way I can go. You know, don't save that old dress, that party dress, because you're not going back to parties. Don't save, you know, that, that beer because you're not going back to that lifestyle. Don't leave those things in the cupboard of your heart. You know, that, that case against that person. Forgive. Get rid of it. Well, what if they hurt me? I need something to say, well, you did that. No, you don't. Christ will be your defense. Get rid of that. Do not, do not, do not hoard Do not hoard anything that at a weak moment could sabotage your spiritual life. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. If there's one thing I know about lust, it cannot ever be fulfilled. It won't satisfy. You drink of that water and you'll thirst again. You cannot eat one Lay's potato chip. God doesn't make mistakes. God wants you right now for his purposes. So again, we need to accept the conditions we live in. Don't let anything distract you from your service to God. Don't let anything draw you away. Don't let anything destroy or damage your testimony for God. Accept the conditions that you live in. Which means that we're going to render taxes and customs and respect and honor to the government. To the ones that it's due. Secondly, acknowledge that God has done so much for you and that he is over all the circumstances of your life. And that love is his greatest gift to you. And that he has given you love and you owe that love to every person you meet. Then be aware that the time is short. These are everything in your life is temporary. Everything. So that you might use all that God has given you. That you might buy up every opportunity that you have for today. And awake to the purposes of God. Hebrews 12 says this. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's time to awaken to the purposes of God. Because God wants to use you right now right here. 
in these circumstances for his absolute glory. A life on the altar will be fully dedicated to the purposes of God, undistracted, undetained, undeterred, uninterrupted from the call, purposes, and power of God's love flowing through your life. You are all called to such a time as this. Let's stand up. Lord, I want to present these, your daughters, to you again. Lord, to put their lives back on the altar for your services. Lord, perhaps there's some right now that have trouble accepting some of the circumstances in their life. Um, Maybe it's the taxes that they've got to get in the envelope today. Lord, maybe it's um, that they have not, they need to acknowledge you as Lord over everything, even um, the hard places in their life. And Lord, that they need to acknowledge that love, not hatred, not unforgiveness, not um, battling and this, but love is their greatest weapon, their greatest ally in this time that they live in. Lord, I pray for these, your daughters, that they might be aware that the time is ticking away, but it's leading us to glory, that they might want to be used for your purposes in greater measure, that they might want to give you more of themselves, that they might want to give their all and all their energy to your purposes and buy up those opportunities. Lord, we pray that we would cast off the works of darkness, Lord, that we would awaken, Lord, to your purposes and your call and to the glory of living for you in these last days. Lord, I pray that each one of these, your daughters would feel it, that they would feel the call. Lord, I pray that these, your daughters would hear that they would hear your voice right now calling them. Lord, I pray that these, your daughters, would receive the call on their lives and not be weary in well-doing, but again, to be aware of the time. So Lord, I present them to you. And as living sacrifices, I put them on the altar before you as gifts, beautiful gifts, that you see blameless and that you desire. Lord, use us for your greatest glory in Jesus' name. Amen.